just a few minutes, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12, if you'd like to go ahead and find your way there. If I were to ask you this question, how does a person go into ministry, how would you answer that question? You see, um, many Christians might say, well, you need to go to Bible college or seminary and get an education and then you serve in ministry, a ministry position for a while, and then you get ordained. I'm certain that there are several different answers of how people think one goes into ministry. In fact, I was, I was curious, so I punched that into Google. How does one go into ministry, or how does someone go into ministry? And if we did that, we'd get 527 million results. We could read things like, uh, called to, into ministry, five questions to ask yourself or five signs you are meant to enter ministry or five signs God is calling you to ministry or how do I discern God's call to ministry we could read for days and be exposed to all kinds of reasons to know why we should go into ministry or why we should not go into ministry the question is really kind of a, a trick question the answer reflects a deeply entrenched but faulty mentality among God's people, which falsely divides people into two categories. Those that are in ministry, known as clergy, and those that are not in ministry, known as laity. And the more we buy into that mindset, the more we cripple the body of Christ. We will end up with just a few who are doing the work of ministry while the majority are happy to sit back and let them do the work of ministry. However, that's not the picture that, the, that we find in the Bible. Instead, we find that, we, that there are those who are gifted in Scripture to be elders who are to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. So what does that tell us? That if you're a believer, you are to be doing the work of ministry. So if you are here this morning and you say, yes, pastor, I believe in Christ as my Savior, then you are to be doing the work of ministry. So to answer the question, how does someone go into ministry? The answer is they trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And at that moment, a person that trusts as, as Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit baptizes them into the body of Christ and as members of the body of Christ each one has a gift which is to be used to build up the body. We like to make fun of Oprah, or at least I do sometimes, and we see the like little memes and stuff like that. For you old people, a meme is, is like... A meme is when... Oh, I gotta be in front of the microphone. A meme is uh, uh, like there'll, there'll be a, a picture in... Uh, movement sometimes it'll have words on it and so so Oprah gives stuff away all the time right so it's like you get a book you get a book you get a book you get a book you and so we share these some younger people share these on Facebook to try to make people laugh anyway we like to make fun of Oprah for giving things away all the time well everyone that knows Christ as a savior has been given a gift so you have a gift you have a gift, you have a gift. You, we could go through the room and say everybody that knows Christ has a gift 
that is to be used in ministry. And that is really what I want to focus on this morning, where we all have this mindset that we see ourselves entrusted by God as a vital ministry for which you one day will give an account. Remember in the parable of the talents, it was the one talent man who went and buried his talent rather than invested it. Far too often in the body of Christ, it is the one talent person who thinks they're not gifted. My, my gift's not important. I can't do anything for the Lord. I can't have an impact in the kingdom of God. And that mentality is wrong. And the lesson I want us to see today is that we need to settle and serve where needed. And so if you are willing and able, I would ask that you please stand out of respect for the word of God as we look at Nehemiah chapter 10. Don't fret. I'm not going to read all of chapter uh, 11, I mean, and chapter 12. I am only going to read verses 1 through 3 of Nehemiah chapter 11, and um, we are covering in this message through chapter 12, verse 26. But Nehemiah 11, 1 through 3 from the English Standard Version this morning. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. And this morning, may we see indeed how we are equipped for ministry. May we truly settle and serve where needed. May you impress that upon our hearts this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we have more written records from the archive of God's people here. Nehemiah has five lists in all. Chapter 3, we have a list of various sections of the wall and the people that were involved in rebuilding it. Then in chapter 7, Nehemiah shares his concern that the newly fortified city uh, might not have sufficient people living within uh, the city, so so they want to guarantee that, um, and so we have a list, and we have Nehemiah discovering this genealogical record and then inserting that into the narrative. Then in chapter 10, we have a list of the names of people committed who committed themselves afresh to God's word in the covenant renewal event, which followed the completion of the rebuilding event. And now we have reached this section where there are two more lists. In chapter, chapter 11, verses 3 through 24, we have a list of people who go to live in the city and of those homes were, uh, who were elsewhere in Judah uh, in chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. And then the fifth and last list is in chapter 12, verses 1 through 26. And in this list, we have details of the priests and the Levites who return uh, who had returned with the first exiles under Zerubbabel and Jeshua in 538 B.C. History was vital to God's people, but they were not just collecting a bunch of information about their forefathers. 
for the sake of having some sort of awesome family tree, like check out my family tree. These are reliable records that trace roots, but they also are more than that. Because from these lists, we ascertain some, some very vital spiritual principles in the mind of Nehemiah. It's not just some dusty, irrelevant catalog of names, but rather we have something that is conveying uh, a far-reaching biblical truth, mainly to settle and serve where needed. And I, I want us to see that. And, and to do that, first, I want us to see a partnership necessity. A partnership necessity. We see right at the beginning that Jerusalem had to be populated if it was to develop any kind of economic, social, or spiritual life. There had to be people in the city in order to be developed. You have to remember that the city had had broken fortification and missing gates, hence it was not a desirable place to live. Now, uh, uh, nor was it a safe place to live at that time, and most of the returned exiles would have felt happier and more secure in smaller towns and villages. People from the rural communities gladly made themselves available for the rebuilding effort. But now the work's completed. Now they're done. They return home to their own working families. Only a minority of Judah's total population actually living within the city walls um, anymore. And Nehemiah knew that their weak number had to be increased if they were going to have any sort of economic life. So to repopulate the city, he adopts this principle of the tithe. So that one person in ten was expected to move from their country homes into the city to establish new life in Jerusalem. Now please understand this. The people realized that the city's community life could only be developed at a high personal cost to themselves. Most of these families lived outside of the city. They would be dependent upon the land for their daily existence and where there was ample opportunity in the country surrounding the city for farming. Over the years, they would have developed a certain lifestyle that provided for their needs, such as tilling the ground and, and sowing and reaping in their fields and gathering their crops of wheat and barley and grapes and, and, olive growing, uh, and, and olives and growing vegetables for their food and for the market and caring for the few sheep or cattle that maybe they had. Now, if this was your lifestyle, this is how you'd lived your life out in the country. I love the country, by the way. But they lived their life out in the country. If that's how you lived your whole life, would you choose to leave your familiar community where you had grown up with your friends since the first of the exile some 100 years prior? Would you just say, okay, I'll, I'll pack up and go? For many of them, the change of location would be a traumatic experience, moving from a mostly rural area to an urban city. The transition was costly, leaving a spacious countryside to live in a confined community with a restricted pattern of life. It meant that they would leave their homes, their neighbors, their work, their friends, and all of their familiar locations, and they would set up a whole new life that was radically different from the life that they had been living. It's kind of like when I moved uh, from the country in Missouri to the middle of a city in Pennsylvania. It was a culture 
shock. Everything was different. In today's society, people, people move. They move a decent amount of time. In fact, a change of location for employment has become more and more common in today's world. Sometimes people seek work in other areas because they can't find work where they are at. And when we move, we lose the familiar and it disrupts our homes and our families and even the education of our children. We lose Christian support and the fellowship of our church. And and when these things occur, it's good to reflect on, on this story here of these newly settled citizens in Jerusalem and remind ourselves of some of the things that may have been going through their minds as they packed up their simple belongings and made the trek towards the city with their children. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the first things that stands out to me when I read this account of how Nehemiah repopulates the city and is the people's total subservience to the will of God. I don't know if you caught that when you're reading it. Here's Nehemiah. All right, guys, gather around. We're going to draw straws to see who's going to move into the city. That's basically what happens. Uh, gather around, everybody. We're going to draw straws and see who's going to move, who's going to change their whole life. And nowhere, not at any point, do we read anybody going, um, excuse me, Nehemiah, is that a good idea? We don't read that. I don't know, Nehemiah. I don't like this plan. And the odds? One in ten. That you're destined to live in Jerusalem. They trusted that the decision was ultimately in the hands of the Lord. And so what we have is about 5,000 people ready to subject themselves and their whole future and their family to the unfolding of God's sovereign will for their lives. And so they took their preferences, right? They would prefer to live out in the country. They took what they loved and was so familiar to them. And they made it secondary to the will of God. They said, this doesn't matter. What matters most is God's will. Discovering the mind of God for their future took precedence over every other priority in their life. It is not always easy to discern God's will for people, even though he is more eager to reveal it to us than we are to discover his will. Any one of us at any time is more than capable of making wrong decisions in life. But if we genuinely seek God's will in his word and we look to ensure God's glory in everything that we do, we are far less likely to make serious misjudgments. Now, in our culture, we don't go around casting lots, right, to discern God's will. I haven't seen anybody do that lately. We have far more spiritual privileges and resources than they had at their disposal. The Holy Spirit indwells and guides every single believer, and I believe he will direct us through his word if we are eager for his guidance. However, that that is the key, isn't it? That we have to be eager to be guided by the Holy Spirit. Sadly, far too often, we want to go our own way and do what we want, and we don't care what the Lord wants. We don't even bother to stop and think, what does the Lord want in this? It's, what do I want? What, what glorifies me? What is my desire? 
we are willfully indifferent to what God's mind may be about our decisions because we don't even consult God. Sure, casting lots, that that seems odd to us. It seems primitive. However, they exercised faith, love, sacrifice, and heroism as they were prepared to uproot everything that they were familiar with in Judah if it was the Lord's will for them to do it. Please understand that it was not their partnership with their job, their partnership with their friends, their partnership with their home, their partnership with anything that took precedence in their life. It was their partnership with God. Their total surrender and uncomplaining sacrificial response to the will of God. It's such an example to us, isn't it? Let me ask you, is is your partnership with God number one in your life? Are you totally surrendered to the will of God no matter what? Do you do you or do you sit around and complain about the direction that God is taking you around? I don't know about this one, Lord. I don't know if we should be doing that. Or or complain about the direction He's taking our church. So we have a, a partnership necessity. Now notice the primacy of holiness. The primacy of holiness. We are told these people who responded to Jerusalem's practical need went to live in the city, right? Wrong. It says they went to live in the holy city. Nehemiah was a devout believer who was fascinated by the holy, which is that which has been set apart for the Lord Jesus. He knew priests were holy people and that they worked exclusively for God. He reminds us that the Sabbath is a holy day in chapters 9, 10, and 13, and that other occasions in Israel's year have been designated as holy. He tells us the sacrifices offered in the temple are holy sacrifices in chapter 10, verse 33. Here in chapter 11, we are twice told that the city has been set apart for God's special use. To live in Jerusalem and be given the privilege to serve God in such a holy place would be regarded as a privilege. That would serve to outweigh their natural sense of disappointment about leaving their familiar surroundings and stepping into the unknown. To be associated with the holy was to be involved in a project specifically designed to glorify God. So sharing in this was an honor not to be missed. But there is more here. To live in the holy city, yes, was a privilege, but it was also a challenging responsibility. It's one thing to have a home in a holy city, but it's quite another to make the home holy. Just because you live in a holy context does not mean that holiness is transferred to individual citizens. Richard Baxter, that Puritan, great Puritan, said this, that a holy calling would not save an unholy man. Each life had to be holy and totally surrendered to God. William Law makes it clear that there is no other true devotion but this of living devoted to God in the common business of our lives. So here is a question for us to answer. Are we holy in the common business of our life? In the mundane of our life, as you go through your everyday life, driving to work or whatever it might be, and go into your cubicle at your job, and yada, 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 and you go through your everyday life, holiness a priority to you? 70 years prior to Nehemiah's rebuilding the walls, two different men exercised a crucial prophetic ministry, ministry in Jerusalem. 
They urged the people to demonstrate their commitment to spiritual priorities by rebuilding the temple, but they also made it clear that holiness could not be achieved by external things. The temple served as a reminder of great spiritual realities, but a religious building does not guarantee divine favor. Attending church does not guarantee divine favor. Haggai stressed that holiness could not be conveyed by physical contact. And in the same period, Zechariah urged Jerusalem's citizens to anticipate the time when everything in Jerusalem would one day be holy, not just the temple. On that day, the holiness of the Lord would be inscribed on the bells of the horses carrying tradesmen's wares and on every cooking pot in their houses, not just on the sacred vessels. A holy city would be a contradiction in terms if it was not inhabited by holy people. The city can't be holy unless the people are holy. The church can't be holy unless its people are holy. Next we notice the privilege of service. The privilege of service. Verse 2 is kind of kind of interesting because as we've already noticed, lots were cast to find one in ten to move to Jerusalem, but it seems that some people also just volunteered to go. The people blessed all the men, it says, who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. It's entirely possible that once the need was known that some people enlisted immediately as prospective citizens saying, hey, I'll go, and, and then lots were cast to bring that list of volunteers up to the required number. Or it's possible that the volunteers supplemented the people whose names were revealed by lot. Perhaps some of them offered to go in place of their friends, like, oh, my friend my friend can't go because uh, they, they have a circumstance that, that, that won't allow them to go, so I'll go in their place. That's, that's entirely a possibility. Whatever the nature, these volunteers are a reminder who by no compulsion other than their love for the Lord willingly offer themselves to work for the Lord. Let me just be real with you. Right? I have yet to talk with any pastor, and I talk to a lot of pastors, I have yet to talk with any pastor that said, you know what, Josh, I went into ministry because I knew it paid well. I knew I I was going to make a lot of money. No pastor says that. Right? Nobody is packing up going to Jerusalem because, oh, they're, they're in it for the money. There's big bucks. Now, granted, he's like, well, I know that TV preacher. He's got a lot of money. He probably does, all right? Maybe he went into it for the money. But, but normal, everyday pastors, they don't go into ministry for money. We should be reminded that over the centuries, volunteers is what's made the gospel go forth. God is... God has been taken up, the work of God has been taken up by draftees and volunteers. There have have been those who are deeply aware of their own limitations and have never considered themselves remotely worthy of the Lord's service. They only volunteered out of a deep sense of compulsion. They only knew that God had called them and they could not refuse God's call. When I was when I was first called to be a pastor, I only knew that God called me. Not once did it enter my mind. I wonder how much I make, or I wonder uh, I wonder what what about this career choice? That never even entered my mind. 
And there's others who have become so overwhelmed, not by their human limitations, but by the challenge that's ahead of them. But opportunity dwarfs their inadequacy. And they realize that people are needed for the work, and they offer themselves freely to be used where the Lord had called them. To be planted, and settle, and serve where they were needed. Late 6th century, Gregory the Great was writing about ministry, and he used two great Old Testament accounts of a prophetic call as he contrasted Jeremiah, the draftee, and Isaiah, the volunteer. There is room for both in the Lord's work. Gregory makes the point that both prophets were motivated by love. Jeremiah's response is based on respect for God and Isaiah's love for his neighbor. Isaiah desired the active life in the office preaching, and therefore he was moved by his desire to benefit his neighbors. Jeremiah preferred to express his love for God in a life of quiet devotion. Therefore, he did not want to be sent. Jeremiah feared that by preaching, he would forfeit the benefit of quiet contemplation. And Isaiah feared that by not preaching, he might suffer harm for his lack of work. Listen, those who serve God, whether out of eagerness, like Isaiah, or caution, like Jeremiah, must do exactly as the two prophets had done. Whether gladly or reluctantly, there must be a total surrender to God's sovereign purpose in their life so that we are to uh, uh, do not whatever is on our mind, but whatever is on the mind of God. It is truly a privilege to serve. So let me ask you, how are you serving here in our church? Next notice, a plethora of ministry. A plethora of ministry. Yes, it's a P. Yes, I'm proud of myself for using the word. Many, lots of ministry. A plethora of ministry. When we look at these two lists of people, we find ourselves confronted with this wide range of gifts and abilities. These people brought to God's work. They were they were people of great leadership qualities. Judah's provincial leaders came to live alongside them in the city, setting an example for those who were required to uproot their family and to populate Jerusalem. Many qualities are required for effective leadership, but few are more important than being an example. It's not enough just to tell people what they must do, but a good leader will do it. He'll say, yes, this is what you must do, but this is what I am also going to do. That's why it is vital that leaders take time to cultivate their own spiritual life. To try not to contradict their message. Both Paul and Peter urged the first century colleagues in, in ministry to take care of themselves so that they did not become bad advertisements for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Puritan Richard Baxter said this, He that means as he speak will sure do as he speaks. Let me be clear that preachers are particularly vulnerable. And churches have every right to a sermon that is first applied to the pastor rather than him just being eloquent with words. Baxter warned that their mission can easily be ruined when he said one proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a sermon and blast the 
There are also people in this list with great administrative skills. The newly populated city had its chief officer and addition, uh, additional colleague who kept watchful eye over the city. These people would ensure that the city's streets and markets were kept clean and that the proper sanitary arrangements were maintained as wise building regulations uh, were honored. These matters were not overlooked in the Mosaic Law. What would be the point of having new walls to a city if old sins were destroyed or would destroy life in the city? Stop and think about that for a moment when it comes to life of a church. What good does it do to replant or revitalize a church if the church never deals with past sin? that will only destroy the new life within the church. What good would it do? You see, there's there's a lot of churches that try to replant or, or revitalize, bring new life in their church that have never dealt with past sin. And so they bring new life into the church, and past sin destroys it because they've never dealt with it. And that's what they're guarding against here. Some people had maintenance experience. Two of the head of the Levites had charge of the outside work of the house of God. According to verse 16 of chapter 11, the temple had to be kept in good repair, and these men were entrusted with the overall responsibility for the care of the fabric. Listen, churches all over the world are grateful for dedicated and practical skills of men and women who care for their buildings. Many of these do so in a voluntary voluntary capacity. I know I'm thankful for people who decorate our church and keep it looking nice, and I'm thankful that when something breaks, we have people that can often fix that thing that is broken. And and when we painted the basement down here, uh, I think it was like two years ago, we had people that said, hey, I'll help paint the basement. I know that often the work that is done around here is done for the Lord. It's not done for the church. And and their service is probably never going to go and reach the pages of any church history book. Like, oh, remember when so-and-so did this and blah, 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 blah. It's not going to make it, but their loving service is never forgotten in the place where the best records are kept. Because God keeps all the records. I'm just saying, church, There's all kinds of ministry. There's a plethora of ministry that's going on in this passage. And I'm certain, I know that you have a gift that can be used right here in our church in ministry. Moving along, we notice the priority of worship. Some had responsibility for the temple's worship. In verse 11, Sariah, the ruler of the house of God, was most likely the high priest of the time. Their spiritual ministry was supplemented by people with evident musical gifts. Mataniah was the leader of the praise who gave thanks. Israel's greatest king, David, had encouraged them to do these two things, give thanks and praise, and call on his name in prayer. Praise and prayer are central to the spiritual life of God's people. In thanksgiving, we acknowledge the generosity of God. The praise element of God should always come First, we are too easily led to crave for more without ever recalling what we have already received from the Lord. To neglect thanksgiving is is to ignore one of the most distinctive characteristics of being a Christian. The godless don't thank God, but we ought to. And then in prayer, we seek God's help. 
Whenever we call on God in prayer, we are confessing to him that we can't live without God. We are openly testifying that we are totally reliant on God. We are no longer dependent on our frail resources. Prayer is a weapon against our self-inflation. There must be a primacy of prayer in the life of every believer. If we look at all the great characters of Scripture, we will notice they all have this one thing in common, and that is prayer. If we look at all the truly successful men and women throughout the centuries, we will notice they made it a daily priority to pray. The temple services were occasions when thanksgiving and prayer were expressed in song. The temple services were occasions when, when, when they would sing these songs. Uzi was one of Asaph's descendants who, who were the singers responsible for the service of the house of God. Mataniah, the director who led Thanksgiving and prayer in verse 17, is also described in the list of returning priests and Levites as in charge of the songs of Thanksgiving in chapter 12, verse 8. There were two choirs, and, and these shared responsive worship as they offered praise and thanksgiving. One section responded to the other as prescribed by David, the man of God, in chapter 12, verse 24. Like that song that we just sang, it was a responsive song. This is what they would do in the Old Testament. One would sing, the other respond. One would sing, the other would respond. In song. Music has played a large part when it comes to worship for the Lord's people and throughout history. The church has been indebted to those who have music ability and have offered their gifts to the Lord and have enriched our praise and prayer in the church throughout the world. These lists of names are testimony to the spiritual commitment of many hundreds of, of Jerusalem citizens. Besides the leaders and the prominent people, such as priests and Levites and the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants, there were innumerable others whose different qualities, skills, and abilities and expertise had been willing and gratefully offered to God. The builder's hammer was no less expressive of sincere devotion than the chorister's voice. Worship needs to be a priority in our life. Sometimes it seems like we're afraid to, to sing praise to God. Like sometimes it, it's like, well, what, what if somebody hears me? Well, that's okay. Now, I don't think you're going to sing and somebody's just going to kill over dead in our church because you opened your mouth and started singing. Trust me, I would know. Okay? I, I don't have that great of a voice. I love to sing. We should sing praise to God. You know why? Because it's not for your benefit. And it's not, you don't sing praise for my benefit. You sing praise for God's benefit. Why? Because, as we just sang, He is worthy of all glory and honor. Worthy of you lifting your voice in praise to him. Moving on, we notice this. The profound grace of humility. Everyone recognizes the necessity, responsibility, and even the privilege of gifted leadership. But not everyone can lead. And you know what I found as, as well is that many people that are not the leader want to be quick to tell the leader 
how they should lead. Like, I'm not the leader, but let me tell you how to lead. The reason everyone can't lead has nothing to do with who you are as a person, but it has everything to do with the fact that God has gifted and assigned people different roles. Some people are assigned to and happily accept less prominent roles in God's work. These list contains the names of less prominent people for a reason. Look at verse 21 of chapter 11. But the temple servants lived on uh, Othel and Ziha and Gishpah were over the temple servants. Nehemiah 11, 21. Some, someone had to be responsible for the welfare, but not everyone could have the job. There has to be servants as well as leaders. The list of priests and Levites who returned with Zerubbabel and Jeshua gives the names of personnel concerned. But also it refers to the important ministry of their associates without naming them. So they're not named. The associates aren't named, but the service is remembered. The story of Christian's work and witness over the years is far more enriching than a record of great names and remarkable events. There are millions of unremembered but committed believers, just ordinary church members, forgotten pastors and evangelists, someone who goes out faithfully and hands out tracts, some, someone teaching a Bible class, a Sunday school teacher, someone who visits the sick, who cleans others' houses, who stewards the, the door at church, a bunch of no-names that have had huge impacts in the kingdom of God. And perhaps some of the most important no-names are those who undauntedly intercede on the behalf of others in prayer. There are certain people you know that you can say, hey, will you pray for me? And you know they're going to pray for you. They're not just going to say, yeah, hey, I'm praying for you, brother. You know they're praying for you. A.R. Vidler wrote a history of the 19th century church. He later said that he wished he had been able to say more. Here's what he said about the ordinary life of Christian people in parishes and congregations, which has gone on steadily from generation to generation, and without which there would be no church history worth mentioning. It does not hit the headlines, and it slips easily through the net, which historians try to catch. What is unsteady and non-reoccurring and more readily open to public inspection? The ordinary, everyday people are the kind of people who are content just to be a helper. They're, they're believers who realize that whatever is done, whether in leadership from the front or in a supportive partnership, must be done not for the praise of the individual, but all for the glory of God. Peter reminded the first century churches that all of our service, applauded or unsung, is an opportunity from God for others to see his glory alone. There will always be a need for men and women who are committed to work as loyal supporters and reliable partners. There are great Christian enterprises that have existed throughout the centuries that would have never been possible if it had not been for un acclaimed sacrificial ministry of people who are ready to play a subservient role in the work of Christ. William Wilberforce could never have achieved what he did for the freedom of slaves had it not been for the years of arduous backroom work by Thomas Clarkson, the researcher that was in Wishbeck 
was a vital was as vital as a parliamentarian in Westminster. Without an essential, reliable person behind him, continually obtaining vital information, the reformers' work would have been impossible. D.L. Moody was a vigorous evangelistic preacher who was used to bring thousands to faith in Jesus Christ. But few people know how it all began on a Sunday morning in 1855 when Edward Kimball invited Moody to come to Christ who loved him and who wanted his love and should have it. That's what he said to Moody. Christ loves you and wants your love and he should have it. Moody remembered that there were tears in Kimball's eyes. Edward Kimball was was this hesitant witness. He didn't want to go. He had no gift for preaching. But those tears in his eyes were just as eloquent as any of Moody's sermons. The forgotten Sunday school teacher made an incalculable contribution to the story of the 19th century evangelism. The church's best story is that of self-effacing service and independent partnership. Even the apostles knew the strategic importance of supportive colleagues. And their letters frequently testify about about their invaluable contribution of, of those that were supporting them and their encouragement and their help. It's so vital to the church. When not everyone can be the pastor or has God-given gifts to be the pastor or the responsibility of the pastor, yet many want to tell the pastor how he must do his job, how he must pastor. Not everyone can be an elder. Not everyone can be teachers. Not everyone can be a deacon, nor should we be trying to shoehorn people into roles that they are not called to be in. What I'm saying to you is the pastor is not a deacon, and the deacon is not a pastor, nor are they an elder. All I am saying is let us humbly serve in our roles that God has placed us in and watch God do the work. If we would do that, God would would pour out his blessing on us. We should have this profound humility of of grace in our life. And lastly, let me share with you this. The perpetual importance of family. The perpetual importance of family. As we look through these verses, it's perpetually clear that family is important. As As we look over the list, we realize that there is something more here than a long catalog of individuals. Throughout these verses, we have references to families into which these workers were born and and where their faith in God was encouraged and nourished. Their their parentage is traced through six or seven generations with its explicit acknowledgement of the crucial role of the family. The family has a loving and secure unit of personal care and spiritual education. Families were intended to play an enormous part in the life of God's people. We could sit here and read the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, over and over again in this list. These lists and other genealogies in Scripture testify to the reality of Israel's commitment to share God's word with their children and working members of the household. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts, as Scripture tells us. Now, in today's society, the family is highly vulnerable and exposed to increasing danger. So many marriages in the U.S. are likely to end in divorce. And a recent study suggests that the likelihood of divorce is higher among those whose childhood home was disrupted by marital breakdown. 
if the current divorce stats hold true, then one in four children living in mar- uh, married couples' families will experience divorce their fam- uh, in our family before reaching the age of 16. Many of us probably know of children who have been affected in some form or another by a divorce. These lists in Nehemiah are a reflection of a family structure, which provided children with emotional materials and necessities and physical care and intellectual encouragement and moral values and spiritual teaching. Israelites' commitment to the priorities of the family care is a rebuke to our contemporary culture and our casualness about marriage. It reminds modern believers that they have a responsibility to encourage, nourish, and protect family values, and that in tragic situations of family breakdown, local churches, local churches have a vital role to play in offering love and understanding and support and practical care and security to people. One of the church's most strategic opportunities in our world may indeed be to provide sensitively and unobtrusively that measure of compassion and understanding that says to that, that woman or that man that has gone through a divorce, those very words of Christ when he said, I was a stranger and you invited me in. Sometimes that has to be our attitude. Here's what we must understand. People will hardly see Christ in us we fail to help them in the midst of a crisis. They're not going to see Christ. When they walk in here with a broken family and broken relationships and a broken life and we fail to help them, they won't see Christ. So here's my plea to you. If you're here in our church, make your partnership with the settle in and consider ministry a privilege. Find a ministry and humbly get plugged in making worship with your family a priority. And find a place to humbly serve that God would be glorified through your service to him. Because he's the only one that matters. And perhaps this morning you need to respond to this message in some way. Maybe Maybe it's in prayer. Maybe it's just in your in your pew in prayer there. It's it's maybe you need to pray, Lord, I need to be more involved. I need to be involved in a ministry. Or maybe I need to start a new ministry. Maybe the Lord's spoken to you today. Because if you know him, you are to be in ministry. Or maybe, maybe you just need to uh, uh, respond with, with encouragement to someone. I don't know how the Lord's spoken to you. Finally, let me be clear. You can't really be involved in ministry unless you know the Lord as your Savior. And if you'd like to know more about that, then then I'd invite you to come forward here in a minute as we sing and say, Pastor, I I don't know Christ. I can't be involved because I I don't know Jesus. I just want to encourage you today. The Lord's spoken to you in any way. Would you respond, whether it's prayer and and you tell me later or, or whatever? want to encourage you to respond to how the Lord may be speaking. Let's, let's close the prayer.